Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the premier place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you got. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Ulysses Unabridged by James Joyce. Or how about Dracula by Bram Stoker? Or how about Lord of the Flies by William Golding? Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. That's enjoyable. That makes me happy. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me talking to you. This is you listening to me talk to you. This is the cranial entanglement. My guest today is Lauren Groff. She's a very talented young writer who's had an amazing start to her career. Her debut novel, The Monsters of Templeton, was a big bestseller and was critically acclaimed. Uh, Stephen King wrote about it gushingly. Uh, her second book was a story collection hailed in similar fashion. It's called Delicate Edible Birds. And now she is publishing her latest novel, which is called Arcadia. It's available from Hyperion, and it's already gotten starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Kirkus, as well as blurbs from people like Richard Russo. So uh, she's a rising star, and I'm very happy to have her here on the show. She and I are going to be talking in just a minute. And I should also mention that her sister, Sarah, uh, is also a high achiever. She's a tremendous athlete, and she's going to be competing in the Olympic Games in London as a triathlete this summer. So look for Sarah Groff uh, on your television set and cheer for her as she goes for the gold in the triathlon. Uh, and, you know, this sort of strikes me uh, as somewhat odd, genetically, you know, genetically speaking, that a fiction writer and a triathlete are sisters. Uh, that, you know, because like obviously one activity is relatively static and the other activity involves a huge amount of physical exertion. But, uh, you know, psychologically speaking, they seem somewhat similar to me. 
like writing long form fiction, whether it's a collection of stories or a novel or a memoir or whatever it is, uh, it is a test of endurance. Like you do have to be willing to suffer and you have to be willing to push yourself past your breaking point uh, in some instances and keep going even when, you know, you don't think you can, which is uh, somewhat similar to being a triathlete, right? Uh, but the thing about sports that always makes me uncomfortable to think about is the issue of raw talent. You know, like I'm capable of convincing myself that if I work hard enough as a writer, uh, I can write a great book. I'm capable of convincing myself of that. You know, if I'm just exceptionally committed and focused and relentless, it can happen. And, you know, talent is an overrated virtue, that whole theory. And there's even a book out right now called Talent is Overrated. And it's doing well. And it's by Jeff Colvin. And it's about, like, deliberate practice and how greatness is attainable but requires tremendous sacrifice. And if you're not getting where you want to go, you're simply not working hard enough or smart enough. And you're not practicing deliberately enough and that sort of thing. Which can be painful news to hear, but might also be healthy medicine. And, you know, I understand that. And, I, you know, and to be fair, I haven't read the book either, which I'm sure goes into even greater detail and more nuance. But I think that's the gist. And, I, you know, overall, uh, I, do, I do like that message. You know, I like the idea that if you're willing to do the work, you can make it. And if you're willing to sacrifice and bleed for whatever it is that you want to do, uh, you know, I like that equation because there's hope in it. But what freaks me out about sports uh, is that there's definitely a huge genetic component when it comes to whether or not someone succeeds. Like 99% of the time, or 99% of it almost, you know, it seems like. And I say this, uh, with, you know, with some degree of insight because my wife has worked on the ESPYs in the past, which is like the Oscars of sports. It's like an award show. So I'm a sports fan, and I get to go to this show and I, I kind of nerd out and hang around backstage with all these athletes. And I'm telling you, when you're in a room with these people, uh, you realize just how physically inconsequential you are. Like, I'm almost six feet tall, and I'm somewhat athletic. You know, it's, that's generous. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an average athlete. And when I'm standing next to, like, LeBron James or Serena Williams or Jerry Rice or Brett Favre, uh, forget about it. Like, forget about it. Like you're in a room with 200 of these people, you're surrounded by them, and it's just you and them, and you will feel the immense weight of your total mediocrity bearing down upon you. Now, in, in that kind of room, uh, <laughs> you are a pitiful human specimen compared to the rest of these people, and they could crush you like a bug. You're literally standing next to 300-pound men who could give you a tw you know like a 20-yard head start and could chase you down easily and break your femur like a toothpick. And, and yeah, I mean, they do work hard and that there's no doubt about that. And some of them, uh, yeah, some of them are on uh, human growth hormone or whatever, but they do work extremely hard. And, and that's what kind of separates them, I think, from the other genetic freaks. And so, uh, it just makes me wonder if this is what happens in writing or any profession for that matter. You know, do you have to be a genetic freak first to excel at the highest level? You know, like, do you have to have that enormous raw talent and that, that genetic gift? Uh, and if you don't, will it ever happen? And then on top of that, you have to work your ass off. You know, I, I kind of wonder if it takes both, which can be depressing to think about. 
you know, assuming that that's true. And, and that's a big assumption because, you know, what do I know? But assuming that it is, then, you know, the vast majority of writers who are out there struggling are essentially struggling and hoping to be uh, like the next center on the Lakers or the next shortstop for the Yankees or the next gold medalist in the shot put. And it's just never going to happen, no matter what, because they just don't have the the genetic gift. Like, I could shot put all day long. You know, like, I'm never going to win the gold. But, I mean, you know, and there are underdogs, too. I mean, that does happen in sports and in life, where somebody, like, uh, you know, outperforms their their uh, their particular situation. But I kind of think that in our culture, we sort of love that narrative a little bit, you know, a little bit too much because it applies to the vast majority of us. So, of course, we like it. And, you know, just the other night I was watching TV and uh, flipping around and Rocky II was on. And I found myself watching it and laughing, like hysterically, which sometimes happens with movies. You know, certain movies are what I call accidental comedies. Uh... You know, where they're, they're, they're intended as dramas, but they happen to be really, really funny. And films like Top Gun and Point Break and Roadhouse uh, are among some of the finest examples of the genre. So I'm watching Rocky, uh, this Rocky movie, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, how absurd this is. That Rocky Balboa could ever beat Apollo Creed. Ever. Unless, like, Apollo Creed had walking pneumonia and gout. And what's even funnier is that Sylvester Stallone is like five foot six, which is so clear in the movie. You know, he's this tiny guy, at least in terms of height. And Carl Weathers, who plays Creed, is a former NFL linebacker. It's an obnoxious fairy tale. Not to mention that 99 times out of 100, a white guy is not going to be able to outbox a black dude. He's just not. You know, that's just life. And it's ridiculous. You know, like you got to wonder, like, what what do black people think when they watch Rocky? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just it, it's silly, and and you know, it is an underdog story, I guess. And and Rocky's the underdog, that's for sure. And somehow he wins. He trains by punching uh, the carcasses of cows. And uh, you know, this, uh, but you know, speaking of underdogs, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, who obviously has taken his fair share of criticism over the years for his acting style and his diction and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, he's also a screenwriter. And uh, I just looked this up. Uh, he's written 24 films in his career. Uh, and some of the bigger ones, uh, obviously the Rocky films. You know, he, he wrote all the Rocky films. Uh, and he wrote Staying Alive, the John Travolta vehicle, which I was not aware of. And he wrote uh, Rhinestone. Remember that one with Dolly Parton and Cobra? which I liked quite a bit as a child, as well as Over the Top, the arm wrestling movie, which I was also a fan of, uh, and then Cliffhanger, and then most recently, The Expendables. And uh, in doing this research, I discovered that uh, Stallone's very first writing credit was on a 1973 television show called The Evil Touch. And what's interesting about this is that he wrote under a pseudonym, and his pen name was uh, Q, like, like as in the letter Q, Moonblood. Q Moonblood, <laughs> uh, which is sort of heavy. Moonblood. And uh, I like that. Uh, it's nice to know that even Sylvester Stallone went through a phase where he wanted to change his name. 
Uh, that comforts me. And uh, I also learned that his mother, uh, Jackie, is an astrologer and a former dancer and formerly a promoter of women's wrestling. And his father uh, was a hairdresser. Like all of this is interesting to me. You can start to see the pieces. You can start to see the genetic puzzle that formed Sylvester Stallone. And uh, somehow it worked, you know? The, guy, the guys had a big career. Can't argue that. But, uh, you know, does that mean he's an elite talent? Is he an elite screenwriting talent? An elite actor? Or did he just practice deliberately uh, longer and harder and better than other people? Did he outwork everybody? Or, or did he get lucky? All of the above? You know? These are the questions that vex me. I don't know. It's a mystery. And I think it eludes us. And uh, I think that's why we like these kinds of underdog narratives. The David and Goliath. The, the Balboa and Creed. The uh, James Joyce versus Q Moonblood. Q Moonblood. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you're, like, you're down in the swamp and you have kind of like a studio built into the garage, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it was a former uh, woodworking shop, so it's, uh, it's a mess. I mean, it has a cement floor. Um, my husband put up these um, the walls, um, but it's just—I mean, there are insects running around right now as I speak, and you know, it's, it's horrible. But it's wonderful at the same time. I mean, I love uh, that it's really informal, and I can come here whenever I want. And I have a treadmill in the corner um, and an easel for my really bad painting because it's—it's it's really bad. Um, and I, you know, this is also a place that my kids can't get into. I. I refuse to allow anybody in here so it's it's perfect for what it is it's really the shed um in a lot of ways do you have a do you have like a lock on the door like you have a deadbolt no but nobody wants to go through the creepy garage to get to my studio <laughs> so nobody actually makes it in it's um it's separated from the house and you have to go across the garden and then um into this really dark and dank garage that's just scary um, and then you get into my little area. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a humbling maneuver to come into here, uh, in the morning when they, when they start to work. It's good. Yeah. And okay. And so like, you're talking, uh, no climate control either. So like in the summers in Gainesville, I'm imagining like extreme heat and you're just in there grinding and out. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And well, I mean, I sort of have climate control. I have a window unit, AC unit, um, that we got from our neighbors when they were moving away. 
and I have a, a plug-in heater, but I, it's honestly, in the summer, there's no way that this window unit can keep up with the massive heat. Um, so, and in the winter too, it gets really, it does get cold here. Um, it, it, it's just, I mean, not a comfortable place. But that sometimes is really good for writing. You shouldn't be too comfortable, I think. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's something see, I, like I'm imagining this in like heroic terms, you know, like you're. <laughs> it's not heroic, but <laughs> it's just like it's like, a, it's like a sweat lodge or something in the summer, and then uh, <laughs> and then what kind of crit, we're talking like critters, like we're talking like cockroaches and. Yeah, we're talking big. Um, you know those lizards that just sort of scamper about everywhere down here. Um, we have those. Um, I, I think I have a raccoon above my head in the garage, but I don't really know. It's either a raccoon or a rat. There's something living up there. Or it's a person. I don't know. Um, there could be a human being nesting in your <laughs> Anything is possible. You know, it, it sounds like a human. The footsteps are very loud. Um, and if it is, oh, well. I mean, it's a place out of the, the sun. That's good. Um that actually happened in my youth. There's a there's a guy who escaped from jail who bedded down in one of my neighbor's basements for a very long time, for like three months, and nobody found him until later. It was a fascinating thing that happened. Oh my God! Was he? Was I he, know. Was he wasn't dangerous. Was he? Well, I don't know if he was dangerous or not, but it was so terrible because there are kids in the house who were actually living upstairs while this man was sleeping in the basement. Um, but I don't. I don't know if you think this or not. You know, when you're a kid, your parents sort of try not to um, tell you the really bad parts of right. what happened. Right. <laughs> so right. you know, you could have been totally innocuous and in there for shoplifting or something. But um, I, I don't know. But I, I, I think about that a lot. You know, the man in the basement who may or may not be harboring grudges. That's <laughs> <laughs> the stuff in the story. I feel like there's fiction there. Something that could somehow. Be I know there should be. You know, I tried actually once writing something about it, but it, it never came to fruition. Um, okay, so like, just like you know, I, I don't want to like uh, spend too much time on this, but you know, like one thing that you did say that that uh, caught my attention is the fact that you have a treadmill uh, in in your office, like in your office space, uh, which I yeah. think it's like almost like a hamster wheel. Like I feel like this is <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, is that yeah. Its, is that its purpose? Because I could see that actually being really helpful. It's super helpful. I, I use it when I read, actually. Um, n- not that um, I can re- I can't read sitting down because I read all day long. But it, what what it does is it forces me to get through books in one you know burst. Um, and having the the rhythm pushes me really fast through you know the research books that I need to do in order to write. Um, and the other thing too is I get I get really anxious when I write. I'm just an anxious person in general. And I have to blow off some of that steam somehow. I also have an enormous hula hoop in here, uh, which is very helpful. You know, all the cockroaches laugh at me, but um, I hula around. <laughs> as does as does the man who lives upstairs. <laughs> I know. In the neighbors, you can see him too. They're all laughing. So okay, so there's okay. So I want to stop again because, like you say, that writing makes you anxious, and this this comforts me because uh, as I was, <laughs> as I was just telling you uh, before we started this, like I just was working and I feel the same way. It is this it is the weirdest emotional process because uh I find myself feeling anxious while I'm doing it and I find myself like kind of desperately wanting to get this thing out of me and done. And then when it's done and I look back on it, I have all this nostalgia like it was the greatest thing ever. Does that make any sense to you? 
Yeah, and then the anxiety grows when your book is about to come out, and it, it becomes almost as if um, you're producing an actual human child right. um, that you know you have to push into the world, and it just becomes a totally different anxiety. It's, it's just this—it's the same amount of anxiety, but it's it morphs throughout its. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> making, we're making we're making this profession sound so great, aren't we? I mean, it's just. Oh a- yeah, well. <laughs> You know, if we we praise it too much, everyone's going to be a writer. So we got to make it sound terrible. That's right. We've got to weed some people out. So, and then the easel, like, you know, the other, that's the other part of your uh, workspace that I find fascinating. Like sometimes you'll just, like, if you're writing and you get stuck, will you go paint? Yeah. No, and I'm serious that I'm the worst possible artist on the face of the planet. But what I like about it is that, um, you know, I, I think we all struggle with feelings of uh, perfectionism. And um, and I, I work really hard against that. And, and painting is my way to, to say, you know, you can be so freaking terrible at something and it doesn't matter. And um, that's, it's just a good reminder when I sit back down at the first draft and say, okay, it doesn't matter. This is the first draft. I can, I can just, you know, throw anything on the page and it does, it's fine. It'll end up being fine. Um, it's just, you know, an exercise in humility again. Um, well, it's, which it, it's that too, but I also feel like maybe it would be, because uh, I've tried to do this before. Like I fell, I fell out of it. I went through like a quick phase, which is common for me. Like I've been through like, I feel like I've been through every phase, but I was like, I'm going to be a painter because I'm going to exercise a different part of my brain. Right. This will like loosen me up for writing. And then I got very into portraiture and Mod- wow. well, and Modigliani in particular. Like I was like, wow. yeah, I was like really, like, I was like affected by that, those portraits that he did. And I decided I was going to try to, you know, uh, copy him to, to learn. And I wound up painting these portraits that, that uh, I, you know, uh, this is going to sound crude, but I just feel like I painted like several portraits of people with like, you know, uh, horrible like disfigurement or something. They were not appealing to look at. So I, I kind of <laughs> like lost interest. But that strikes me as something that could potentially be healthy, not only for the humility part of it, but also for um, just just the, the parts of the brain that it works. It feels different you know like because i did remember doing it and feeling like really uh opened up or just like meditative or something like there's something great about painting yeah well i mean it's the same thing with other visual arts and i took a lot of photography classes in in college and um it's true that when you start looking at the world through sort of a, a more visual um medium you start seeing things very differently. You start seeing, you know, the quality of the light and you start seeing detail and texture in a way that possibly a writer sitting in a dank um, little studio would never see it. So it, it does help train the visual um, sense of the world and more than visual. I mean, you just open yourself up, as you said, to other sensory um, impressions. Well, yeah. And it probably tunes up, like you say, it probably tunes up the visual aspect of your writing, you know, like you, yeah. you, you see better. Yeah, you do. And the other thing, too, that is helpful, and I don't know if you do this, too, but um, I I make bread. Um, and I think the kneading process, because some, some bread you have to knead forever, is, is in, I, I don't know, there's something so, so obviously so visceral about it. You just, um, you're up to your elbows in this gooey crap. Um, and uh, you just have to work over in your head what you're working on, and it's incredibly helpful to, to root you in, in a place and to, to remind you of 
the other senses, the sort of the texture of the bread itself and, and the smell and um, to bring you back into that element too. I think that's also just in the, in the same way it's as helpful as painting is to me. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, it sounds kind of similar to like, you know, you hear creative people talk about how they get their best ideas while like washing the dishes or something, like just getting your hands yeah. dirty, going through a process, like, you know, cooking. I, I feel like that, uh, that makes sense. Even though I don't do it, I probably should do. You more. don't cook? No, well, I mean, I, I microwave artfully, you know, <laughs> um, but no, I, it's the kind again, it's the kind of thing that like I tell myself I should do. And I've gone through like phases where like I'll research a recipe and then I'll go into the kitchen and I'll, I'll make something and, and you know, it's satisfying, but it feels like a lot of work to me. And I typically, yeah. at the end of the day, I feel like I just don't have the energy sometimes to like dig in and do that, you know? It's true. And I, I'm not the best cook in the world either. I, I mean, I do my things, I do my breads and I do a lot of baking. Um, but it does feel as if it's a waste of creativity. If You know what I mean? If you're, if you're to make up your own recipes and just you'd eat the food and then you have nothing to show for it. Right. And so much of writing is about, you know, doing the work and having nothing to show for it. Um, but it, it feels like a repetition of this loss um, in a way sometimes, I think. Well, it's, you know, it's, you know, I, I compare it in my head to like other arts, you know, and like I often imagine like, are painters having more fun than we are? Like, are, I think music, I think, mus I think musicians <laughs> definitely are like that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think musician is to, to be a musician, to have that natural capacity and the ability to like sing and play an instrument uh, and then to get paid for it and actually make a living from it. Like that to me, I think is the height of artistic glory. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like to, just to step out on stage and have like 50,000 people in real time, just like screaming your name while you, you know, change their, you know, neurochemistry by like strumming a guitar. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I, I can only imagine what that must feel like. There are very, very few people who can do that. Um, at the same time, I revere writers that I, you know, whose work I admire, you know, and it's an amazing skill, but you know, knowing what it takes, uh, to do it, you know, or at least having some inkling of what it takes to get that work done. I mean, it's just, uh, there's something blue collar by comparison about writing and, and maybe I'm just idealizing music, you know, maybe that's what we're doing, but that's the way it seems. Well, yeah. I mean, what you see with a musician is when they come out on stage, but you don't necessarily see all of the hours they spent sort of strumming along their little ukulele or something. Um, you know, you, you don't see that what goes into it and all of the, the classes that we have to take. It does. I mean, because you're a writer, you, I, you, you, see all of those hours at your desk as workman-like. Um, but and I'm sure they would say the same thing, too. And then when the book comes out, it's this big celebration, and suddenly it's this thing that's public when it was private before. Yeah, um, but it's not like a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're Jeffrey Eugenides, you are, yeah. and you're striding over Times Square in your billboard and your vest. That's right. You, yeah. got, your, you got your vest on. You're just walking around like, <laughs> Manhattan, just owning it. He's just like, he, I mean, that was amazing. He was like this incredible urban pirate. It was phenomenal. Yeah, I know. I mean, I remember, I mean, it made a huge, like, I think it even got its own Twitter account. Like someone started did. a Twitter account for Jeffrey Eugenides's vest, which I thought was awesome. I loved it. Um, okay. So another thing I want to ask you about is uh, a reading project that you uh, self-started a while back. And uh, it was something that you did where you would reread canonized work that you didn't like at first. 
uh, or at least on the first you know time or even more than one time uh, that you read it. And this is interesting to me. Um, like, for example, like one of the books that uh, you read was Moby Dick, correct? Yes. And like the first three times you read it, which is that, you know, it's admirable that you even tried three times. Like usually when someone doesn't like a book, that's it, right? Um, right. Like why did you keep going back to it? And then what was it about the fourth time that um, made it different? Because like I want to say I read somewhere that you said it changed your life. You know, which is pretty. Strong, oh, it did. Like strong. Yeah, it like, did. Like, what was that? What was that like? How did that happen? Uh, it's. Just, I came to a realization a, a while ago that um, when I don't like a book, it's it's usually in my head. Um, there's something that's happening in the alchemy between my brain and the book uh, that's making it fall flat. And um, I knew that there were intrinsic good qualities in Moby Dick, obviously, because everybody ever, always hears about it. And and the first part of the book is, is kind of funny, and it's um, it's odd, and it's attractive. Um, so I knew that there was something in that book. And, and like any other book, um, when you go back to it, you find yourself in whatever time that you are in. So, you know, and I, I think I, I mentioned this as a, an example, but um, just because it's so vibrant and it's so true, but Lolita at 13 and Lolita at 30 is a totally different book. I mean, right. <laughs> now, I, you know, right. Um, at 13, it's all titillation and, and crazy, you know, uh, fireworks going off in your head. And, and now, you know, if I were to read it, I would definitely sympathize with Lolita's poor mom because I was mother. Um, so, you know, everything changes in a, as your life changes too. And right now, I'm trying really hard um, to read uh, the reissue of Proust. And this is going to sound so pretentious, but I feel like, you know, I'm a writer. This is my world. I I should probably know Proust. Um, And I love Swan's Way, and I can get through Swan's Way, but I'm having so much difficulty getting through everything else. And I think part of it is, you know, I've had two babies in the last four years, and possibly being sleep deprived um, keeps me from being able to follow the sentences. But I know at some point I'm going to be able to go back to those books and read them and they're going to blow my mind. Um, I just know it. You know, you, you know it, you read the, the, the text and you, and you can feel sort of the power in it. Um, but it's maybe not right for me at the moment. Um, and that, that's the same with, you know, poetry and uh, my contemporary books and um Things of that nature, I just, I just want to keep it alive and give it a chance and not be the kind of person who throws away a book because it didn't, um, it didn't dovetail with who I was at the moment I was reading it. Well, no, that's an important point. I mean, I've had books, like you talk about not being able to like follow the sentences because you're tired, but like I've had experiences reading books where uh, I, I truly didn't understand what the person was saying. Like I, couldn't, right. I could not understand the book. And what's uh, what's odd is that like you know five or six or seven years later I would pick up the same book and understand it perfectly, and like right. I haven't had that happen a lot, but like I've had that happen, and it's like it's really uh, jarring and strange and interesting, you know. And it's just it's such a function of time, like and where you are in your particular experience of life, like you know. Sometimes a book, like it's always great when a book syncs up perfectly on the first read. Uh, and you pick up the right book at just the right time, and it speaks to you, like you know, in this right, in this right. beautiful, uh, immediate way. But um, like you say, and, and it's something 
um, that I should remind myself is that just because I pick up a book uh, and it doesn't uh, work for me now doesn't mean it won't work for me later. And I think it's also, um, you know, it can be sort of arrogant to pick up a classic and just be like, ah, this is, this is crap, you know, just cause it, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I've done that. If I'm, if I'm being honest, like I'll pick up a book that everyone tells me I should love or that is everyone tells me is important and I'll have a lot of, a lot of trouble accessing it. You know, like I can read, yeah. I can read Shakespeare and be like, ah, you know, like falling asleep here. And I hate to say that <laughs> because I feel like it makes me sound stupid, but that's the truth. And, uh, no. you know, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, it's, I think right. it's a common experience. And I remember reading a uh, quote from John Updike where he said, you know, you don't read the classics because you love them. You read them until you love them. Uh, hmm. and I think that that makes, I mean, that's sort of what we're speaking to here. I mean, does that make some sense? Like kind of, like yeah, yeah. you stick with it or you, at least you go back and revisit it and, you know, maybe you never hit that perfect synchronicity where it's the right book at the right time in your life. But I think that having kind of a healthy respect for a book that has stood the test of time like that is probably more appropriate than just like, you know, shunning it or calling it, calling it bad, you know? Although there are books that have withstood the test of time and are, are bad. Yeah. <laughs> Objectively bad. Like any Ayn Rand book is just bad. It's just bad. And if you like it, if you're older than 16, then you should read more books. <laughs> <laughs> and you are bad. You are a, you're a human sheep. <laughs> no, um, that's not very nice. But uh, I have a visceral reaction to her. But, you know, in the apocalypse, perhaps, I will reread uh, her work and I will find her brilliant and, and her work uh, to be prophetic. Well, Who knows? You know, but you know what it is about, uh, is it Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand? Like, I, I thought it was Ayn, but I think it, it's, it might be Ayn. Yeah, let's say Ayn. Like Ayn Rand. Okay. Uh, she's a perfect example of, of the kind of writer that I'm sort of like amazed by and confused by at the same time because she was so confident in what she thought. Like right. she believed her own ideas. And like, I think that there's like, I don't know. I, this is what I, I get conflicted about it because when somebody is, believes their own ideas, uh, I can sometimes say to myself, well, clearly they're just, uh, you know, egomaniacs or clearly they're, um, you know, deluded in some way. And then there's also right. like, I want to say there's like a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I always go to like, cause whatever he said must be absolutely true. Like that's how I have him like <laughs> rated in my mind. But he's like, you know, the mark of true genius is to believe in like the beauty of one's own thoughts or, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, um, I, I think there's something to that too. Like, you know what I'm saying? To believe in your own ideas, even if they don't necessarily make sense or seem beautiful to other people, um, you know, can be a virtue too. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like striking. Yeah. A yeah. It's like striking a balance between the two things. And, uh, it's just like, I'm like diametric or I'm like the exact opposite of the kind of person who could come up with like a philosophy, you know, like, <laughs> like you do, you do not want me to have that job. You know, that would be a disaster. Like it would just be like, well, I don't know. You know, like that's basically what it would be. Um, right. But, right. Know, but she seemed to like, she seemed to think she had it figured out, which is like astonishing to me, you know? Right. But was she saying anything new? I don't, think so. I think she was just digesting previous philosophical insights and and putting them into her own sort of cardboardy um, fake world. Um, 
I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. I love the confidence. And honestly, I would follow, I would read a lot of anyone who does show that, that just pure authority. And I've, I've read Ayn Rand's books, you know, um, that doesn't mean that I admire them or love them. The other thing too is, okay, this is the other thing why I dislike her very, very much. But so the novel to me is the most powerful instrument that we as humans have to be able to sort of peer into other people's hearts. Um, and what she does is she takes this incredible, powerful uh, tool and she turns it into a weapon. She weaponizes uh, humanity in a way that sickens me. I mean, instead of, it, it'd be as if, you know, if I were to hand you a pencil, um, um, but in, for the purposes not uh, to draw or to to write, but to poke someone else's eye out. You know what I mean? She's she, she's turning what is a beautiful into something that is um, crass and um, and closes down the human heart as opposed to opens it. And this is why I hate her. Um, I think I hate the underlying philosophy more than anything. Well, yeah, and it's also odd fiction because it contains like these like long philosophical tracks like within the narrative. You know, very f- it's it's rare that fiction of, uh, like that could could succeed. You know, at least in terms of like book sales, that people would actually embrace it. But she, I guess she found a way, and she has her uh, devotees. But uh, we are not <laughs> two of them. <laughs> no, <laughs> good. Um, so let's talk about your childhood. Um, you were raised... Oh, you want me to weep? Yeah, Just that, kidding. No, this is like it's yeah. like Barbara Walters. <laughs> it's a goal of mine to make somebody cry in like a gentle, oh, good. yeah, tender way. So Cooperstown, your childhood. Yes, Cooperstown. Like, yeah. yeah, in a nutshell, like what was it like for you? Like this, it's to me. I think Cooperstown, and because I think of the Hall of Fame, I'm automatically thinking like Americana and like you know a parade, like a Fourth of July parade, and like you know everybody knows the mayor or something like that. <laughs> Everybody does know the mayor. That's what's amazing. And it is sort of uh, the 4th of July parade all year round. Um, have you been there? Have I, you been to Cooperstown? I have not. I have not. Okay. So it's a tiny little village. I think there are, about, there are fewer than uh, 2,000 people who live there now. And it's on this very beautiful lake, about nine miles long. And um, there, there are lots of old houses, and practically everyone in the summer has a flag out front. And... Um, it's just, it's a very quiet place. There's one stoplight in town. Um, so it, this is a, it was a fantastic place to grow up. Um, so I sort of feel as if I got a, a 1950s childhood in this somewhat modern town in the middle of nowhere. You know, it, it had this large hospital in town, which employs almost everybody, um, as what, well as what, the people what, what, what kind of hospital are we talking about? Um, it's a general hospital, but it also has a lot of uh, clinics in neighboring towns. So its reach is really broad across upstate New York. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's pretty big, um, and it it spreads all throughout you know the area, and um, a lot most of the people uh, are funded through the hospital in some way. Um, and the, and there are a lot of visitors for the Hall of Fame. I don't I don't know how many, but there are lots. And then there's an opera house, you know, in the middle of this tiny little sleepy village. There's this enormous opera house called Glimmerglass, and I love to go because it's they actually have some pretty groundbreaking work. And um, so it's it's this idyllic place, but 
nothing's idyllic. There's no such thing as utopia. It doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, as you grow up, you grow up knowing all of the the legends of, you know, James Fenimore Cooper, um, who was a child of the town also, and um, all of the other things that really only come up, you know, if you're there for the summers and you talk to one another at, over the campfires and things like that. So it's a really beautiful town, and I go there when it's so unbearable, I can't work in my office here in the summers, um, whereas, and it's so cold up there, even in the summer, that um, it's much cooler than it is now in February. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love it, and I loved it growing up, and um, it was just sleepy and quiet, and uh, it was just wonderful. So what was your, I mean, like, and, and what was your family doing there? There's like only 2,000 people there. They were just working at the hospital? Is that what, what, it, what it was? Yeah. My dad works at the hospital, and my mom um, is was a science teacher, and then she went back to school, and she's a physician assistant. Okay, so you, so you come from scientific people, and yet you're a writer. Is that yeah? Odd? I mean, is that strange? Do you have any kind of like uh, lineage, you know, artistically? No, no, not at all. And so my um, my my grandfather is Pennsylvania Dutch, and he has a greenhouse, and you know, I'm really not from um, any artistic people. Um, but when I told my dad that I wanted to be, um, a pediatrician when I was a kid, he, he laughed <laughs> because I do, don't have a math or science brain and I almost have zero memory for, for, um, detail and you need a memory, uh, if you're going to be a doctor, you just, it's just necessary. Um, so he said, no, you know, you like to read a lot maybe you should think along those lines. And, uh, I took him at his word. He, I mean, he was right. I mean, if he if he saw that I really, really wanted to be a doctor, he would have supported me 100%. But, he, you know, you know your kids. Right. Um, and it's not that he didn't he, he encourage me, but he, he said, well, you have other talents. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> this is not what you need he's to good, do. He's a good dad. He sounded like he was gen- yeah. gently nudging you, like, away from the precipice. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, right. it, it brings something to mind. Like, it's so strange because I listen to you talk and uh, I'm somewhat similar. Like, neither of my parents are artists and um, I have a little bit of it on my mom's side, but I don't have any great, like, pedigree or anything. And uh, But I do remember, like, people and instances in my childhood and these moments were probably really kind of just, like, uh, minor in terms of how long they lasted and, you know, the tone with which they were, you know, they, they happened. Um, but I remember people telling me I should be a writer. Including my parents. Oh wow! Yeah, but you know, but that's like, incredible. No, but just like your dad, just saying, like, oh, you know, you like to read a lot, something along those lines. Like, it just, you know, you remember that. I happen to remember that. Like, I think a lot of, I don't know, that stuff matters. You know what I'm saying? I guess it depends on who right. who tells you, but like, you can't underestimate the impact that something like that might have on a young person because, like, I don't remember anything, and I remember that, you know, or you know, right. So right. it's interesting. It never. It never seemed possible for me to be a writer, even though, you know, in my deepest heart, that's probably what I wanted to do. It just, because I had never known an actual person who actually created anything, really, um, um, it just didn't seem like something that a human being could do. Um, and obviously it is, but you know, it, until you actually it, it come in contact with the person who's done it and who's lived to tell the tale, in my head, until college, writers were these golden people who could endure anything and were incredible. Um, and they're very much not 
Um, <laughs> now, you, now you know how painfully. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> how excruciatingly right in there, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you had a happy childhood. I mean, it sounds kind of idyllic. I mean, in some ways, I mean, obviously we know that it's not uh, all ideal, but I mean, it sounds like you had like a happy family. Your sister was like, you know, a good athlete. You were kind of like a bookworm, but it was, it was good in Cooperstown. It was good in Cooperstown. It wasn't, it wasn't perfect. No. Um, what, what is that quote from, I think it's Larry O'Connor. Do you know the one I'm talking about where, she said, "If you if you um, survived your childhood, you have enough to write about for the rest of your life." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Little, yeah. Little paraphrase. Um, so yeah, it was it was really it was lovely, and I would raise kids there in a heartbeat. Okay, and did did it get suffocating when you were like in high school and stuff? Like, did you did the smallness of it start to uh, make itself known the older you got, or was it just something that you didn't realize until you left, or did you never care? Well, I didn't. It wasn't something that I cared too much about because I I read so much that you know I as if and I was a total jock so I filled my time with um, either making myself incredibly tired or trying to read myself to sleep because I have, <laughs> I have issues so so um, Wait, you have what issues sleep issues sleep issues yeah oh, okay. I, me too think it's difficult yeah oh good oh, a fellow sufferer so. Um, a lot of my time is spent, you know, getting away either in body or in mind. Um, so it wasn't, it didn't feel stifling to me because I always knew that I was going elsewhere. Um, so wait, but what was your sport when you were a kid? So I did, uh, soccer, swimming, and track. Those are my things. And then when I got to college, I, um, did soccer and crew. Okay. And so, and you went to Amherst? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now that is, I mean, like, what was, uh, what were you like there? Like how, I mean, it's, it's, that's a pretty good school. Like you're a pretty serious student. Yeah, it was. It was a good. Well, I mean, I wasn't the best student, obviously, um, and I, I, I was difficult. I think um, I was a tricky person at Amherst. Uh, I, I was trying to discover who I was. Uh, so why? Were you, um, so what do you mean you were tricky? What do you mean? Were you like? Uh, were you experimenting with uh, drugs, or were you uh, moody? And I don't know. Like, tell me what that meant. So, okay, so I took a year off between high school and college, and I lived in France for a year. Um, oh. And I know, unbearable, totally insufferable. No, you have no idea. So, you have no idea. Like, I've talked about this. God, I want to say I might have even talked about it on this show, but, like, I have this conversation constantly about how much I would have benefited from a gap year. Like, I needed a gap. Oh, it was amazing. Uh, yeah. It was the very best thing I could have ever done Ever. Um, thank goodness I did it, too. How did you do really? it? How did, how did you get to do it? Who who made this happen? So the Rotary Club, and I think they just phased it out, which is so devastating for the youth of the world. But um, they they had this program called the, um, I don't know, the Youth Exchange Program. And I got exchanged for another kid. Um, and I went to Nantes, France which is, um, it used to be incredibly beautiful, but it got bombed heavily in World War II. Um, and it's, in, it's sort of, it's near Brittany. It's not quite Brittany. But, um, and I stayed with a couple of families, and uh, one of them was uh, a family of caterers, whom I absolutely adored. Um, but I ate a lot, obviously. And when I came back, I was in the, the airport, and I guess I gained so much weight that my parents didn't recognize me. <laughs> devastating. A devastating for, a, you know, an 18-year-old girl. Um, 
<laughs> like you walked up to them and they like were, didn't even didn't even register. Is that what it was like? <laughs> no, they looked past me as I came off, you know, out of the boarding area or whatever the the area was. Oh. Yeah, they they were they were scanning faces, Yang's mine. <laughs> 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 and it was enormous. And so I spent that whole summer, you know, um, really moody and angry. Um, and so I got to school a little bit angry and moody um, and and feeling a little bit superior, which is total bullshit. Um, but, I, you know, I, I spoke French. Um, and right. no, I, I, remember, I remember that. Like people, <laughs> Kids would come back from, like, semesters abroad, myself included, and you felt superior for like a good like three or four months, you know, just because at like, least just because yeah. you had been somewhere other than America, and that and you were bilingual. Right. Were you fully bilingual? No, well, at the time I was really fluent, and what was weird is I actually so one of my majors in college was French, and I at, when I was in France I read a lot, but it's it's hard to gain fluency in reading unless you just do it a ton, and so um, I gained more fluency in college in reading than I did, and I lost a lot of the the verbal fluency that I'd had, and now I go and they laugh at me a little bit. I mean, it's really adorable. Um, you know, I, I try really hard, and uh, it's it's a little bit of a joke. But um, I'm still I'm reading a lot of of books in French now for whatever the next project is that I'm doing ends up being. And so um, I feel really comfortable in the language until I open my mouth. Right. Uh, right. 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 Um, so I was totally insufferable and uh, for a while, and then you know I fell in love, and then um, was. A mess, and um, what do you mean? Like you fell in love with some guy, and then he broke your heart? No, no, I with my husband. Oh, okay, um, okay, okay. But but I didn't. But that that was sort of the problem. Like I I didn't want to be tied down to a person at twenty one when I was going to be a writer. You know, I wanted to have experiences, um, and so I just didn't uh, appreciate him until a few years later. Um, so, I, you know, college, I look back on myself and cringe a lot. Um, it was, it was not I look back. I look back on my whole life and cringe a lot. You know? <laughs> I know, that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, who, who are we joking? I, I do too. Um, so w- when you were at Amherst, you were already, uh, focused on being a writer, like you knew. Privately, yes. Uh, but I only took, I think, two creative writing classes. Um, and that's, but where, I, that, that's where David Foster Wallace went, isn't that right? So, yes, yeah, yeah. So did he loom in your mind at all? I mean, I don't want to ask too much of a um, goofy question, but I mean, was he was his presence, like, I'm, I'm imagining that, especially in writing circles on that campus, he, his presence must loom large, right? He was enormous. I mean, enormous. He, um, and he, I think he's the only person in Amherst history who got um, summa or high honors from two departments, the philosophy and the, the English department. Um so not only was he academically superior to all human beings on earth, um, he had these extraordinary books. And I, I took Infinite Jest on my senior um, spring break. <laughs> just, like, just like all the other kids. God. <laughs> right, just like all the other kids. Yeah. Um, but it was actually strangely the perfect book for a spring break because, you know, you wake up hungover and or you don't go to sleep because you have sleep problems and you get deeply into this fat, never-ending narrative that strangely parallels your 
your sort of surreal feelings about Miami, which is where we were at the at the moment. Um, so it was the perfect book for spring break. Um, yeah, no, he was he was a big major force um, to be reckoned with, and we all tried to reckon. Yeah, I can imagine. And then once you left uh, Amherst, what did you do? So I bartended, and this is my voice, um, which is really kind of small, and I can't project. Um, so I was at uh, in Philadelphia for a year, and I did all sorts of horrible tempe sort of things. Like um, I was a Sierra Club canvasser, and I bartended, and I um, – what else did I do? Oh, I was a sort of a telemarketer for a blood cord saving place, and it was just it was just miserable. Um, and then we went to California for two years, and I I got a nice job at Stanford that let me sort of write a lot um, when all my other work was done. And then I went to grad school. So wait, you you were in Palo Alto? Yeah, yeah, we were in. Um, we had a little cottage in. Atherton, which is near Redwood City. Okay, so that was just like we just kind of want to go live like a bohemian lifestyle in Northern California. Was that it, or was there? No, my husband. My husband had a job at eBay. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, I didn't have any. I, I was like, I'm a writer. I will never make money. Um, so you know, at the at the time, he was like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. We're just. Um, We'll find a little place to live, and you can write. And then I got so bored, I needed to get a job, so I looked into a job at Stanford. Do we just doing what? Like at Stanford. Uh, they were starting up this program called the. Um, oh God, I can't believe I'm going to forget this. This is totally ridiculous. Um, the uh, horrible Lauren. I spent two years of my life there, <laughs> having a like, like this is just terrible. Um, the Center for Psychiatry and the Law, and they did forensic um, psychiatry for legal cases. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I and I helped them start it up, and was just sort of the admin person. Oh, okay, okay, and so then you went to graduate school at Madison. Yes. And you studied. Uh, I always ask. I, I talked to uh, Emma Straub, who also went to Madison. Uh, oh yeah, right, right. On the show, and so like I, I have to ask questions about Lori Moore because. Um, I have a crush on Lori Moore, and I think that uh, like my joke is that she's like the Meryl Streep of American letters, or there's like a Helen Mirren kind of quality to her. Um, yeah. Like, do you have uh, any Lori Moore stories? Like, was she your mentor, or what happened? She was. So so Emma was, I think, the class after mine, and, and fiction classes don't overlap there because there are only six people per class. Um, so my story about Lori Moore was um, – I went there to study with her because I adore the woman. And she, by the way, she's far too young to be Meryl Streep. Or, uh, I, I, or... I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry, Lori. I'm sorry. Uh, I need to apologize publicly to Lori Moore because I eventually, I'm gonna, eventually I'm going to beg her to come on this show. But like, uh, I, I mean only in terms of like her stature um, and like the, I don't know. There's something about it. Like there's something about her. Like I, um, I find there's to be something sort of like sexy about her intelligence, but also something sort of like motherly. Like, I, I don't know. I'm using, yeah. I'm, I'm probably just like painting myself <laughs> into a corner here, but I don't know. I, I think I'm not alone. I think I'm getting at something that a lot of people feel. And I think especially a lot of male fans of hers, um, you know, like I want her, right. I want her to, uh, 
take care of me or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> She's just a sex scene person. Watch out. Yeah, I know. That's, just watch out. It's troubling. Yeah. <laughs> She's um she's magnificent and she's wise, so wise, and every word out of her mouth is either hilarious or um tough. I mean, she's a tough person in class, but um is she like is she hard on you when you're like workshopping stuff? Meaning only in her reactions. She never says anything mean. I don't think the woman can say a mean thing, but if. But it's more like if she doesn't respond to your work with positive, you know, sort of like this overwhelming sense of love, then you know that there's something not right about it. Um, And I have to tell you, I've never worked harder in my life um, before then, before I got to a workshop with Lori, because just imagine giving a story to Lori Moore. Oh, God. Oh my god! Sweating just thinking about it. (laughs) Exactly, it's so fearsome to imagine her eyes on your words. So, I mean, talk about having feelings of perfectionism. Like you worked and worked and worked until you got something even approximating good, and then she would just sort of let the class talk and say some very mild, gentle things, and. Her disapproval is sort of like the best parent ever in a way um, because she never said anything mean, but she made her disapproval clear if she didn't like something. How? And, like just with like a look or would she say like, I'm disappointed in you, Lauren? Like, you know, so- no, she would never say, I'm disappointed in you. But she would say, well, this part is not... I don't know. What does the class think? And uh-huh. and even even by doing that, you know... By by the mild um, disapproval, that would something you would just know that this wasn't right and it wasn't good and it would break your heart. Oh, Whereas well, with you know any other class, if you know if someone were to say, "Oh, this piece of shit," you know, you wouldn't care as much. No, it's like it's, it makes me think. Like um, obviously, it's like an onerous burden upon her students, and like you know, just to, just to be in that position would be stressful. But, um, yeah. you know, she's a, she's a smart enough person and a self-aware enough person to know that a lot of the students in that program uh, revere her work. You know, it's not an easy thing for her to probably admit publicly or anything, but like he, she has to know. And so oh, yeah. if that's the case, that's like a big responsibility. And she um, probably knows that if she comes across as being too harsh or uses the wrong word or slips and like tonally... Um, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, critique with gentleness, she can crush somebody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the, right. way, the weight of her opinion uh, matters to people. I mean, I imagine, right? Or am I like overstating it? No, I think you're definitely right. But I also think that it's just who she is too. I mean, I think she's just a really kind person, kind well, and wise. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's an outgrowth of that. Like a kind person would be aware of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, right, it's, right. Not, it's not that she's like obsessing about her own power, but it's like, you know, there's a responsibility involved. And I think like she's sensitive, you know, you would have to be, um, uh, if you're, if you're a kind person. So that's a part of it that I just, I don't think I've ever really thought about clearly before, but like, yeah, she must think to herself like, okay, go easy. Like, cause you know, in her head, she's like, this is terrible or, you know, this, just <laughs> right. but if she says it that way, some, someone's going to go home and start like cutting themselves or something, you know? <laughs> 
but you know, you do hear a lot about super famous, super um, well-regarded writers being really tough and really mean. I mean, talk about David Foster Wallace. He was not a piece of cake. I mean, he was a difficult person. No, I didn't realize. I wonder. I had him. I had him pegged as like this gentle, sweet genius, you know. And I think he was that. Right. I was reading some sort of uh, essay or piece about him uh, not too long ago, like within the past year. And there was an anecdote. Uh, didn't he date Mary Carr? I think that's who. He, yes. Yeah, like he did. He like got into like some fight with her and it was like, you know, I mean, he's a human being. Everybody has their moments, but it's just like I, I kind of held him in my mind in this like really high saintly place. And it was like jarring to like read that and be like, oh, my God, you know, like. Yeah. You know, somebody who's that bright is, is usually somewhat temperamental, you know. I read um, his syllabus. It's online. You can find it somewhere. Um, from Pomona, I believe. And, and I mean, he says in no uncertain terms, uh, if anything's late, you fail. You know, like, he's just really tough. You fail. Um, and I would not have expected it because I actually had him pegged as a, sort of a gentle, soft, kind person too. And you're, you're right, he probably was, but you know, to be a teacher, it's a little bit different. But I also wonder if um, the Lori situation, um, if people expect different things from female writers and teachers, and they don't want to like open up this whole can of worms because it's an enormous can of worms, like industrial-sized one. <laughs> But but I wonder if people allow male pedagogical models to be harsher, or or feel that it's less devastating if they are. Maybe maybe I could see like I mean I'm, I mean this is this is a quick reaction, but like I can see it being less devastating for me. Like I if I imagine getting berated by David Foster Wallace, that would really suck. But it wouldn't suck. It wouldn't suck quite as bad as having Laurie Moore be like, "This is terrible." Like that would hurt me more for some reason. Um, and I don't know. Right. Quite, I don't know exactly why. Maybe it's just because like I'm a guy and I'm a hetero and she's a woman. I don't know what it would be. But like that would be to me, um, you know, slightly more devastating. Though both would reduce me to, uh, you know, a puddle of a human being. Yeah. I would. Yeah. I would just. I would, I, I would just. Im- yeah. I would implode. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I want to get to, um, you know, your actual publication history and, and then, you know, touch upon Arcadia, which is the new one. Um, but like, you know, you, you struggled just like any writer does in the early days. And like, uh, I want to say, I read somewhere that you, you, you know, you wrote two entire novels early on that, um, you threw away. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I did more than two, I think. Um, but they, I mean, they were just trash. They were so bad. And one of them I actually had a high hopes for, and I have these images from it sometimes, you know, sit up and say, hey. Um, but, no, yeah, I I had to go through the, the suffering over early drafts to sort of teach myself how to write. And then eventually I got to my grad school program, and it taught me it sort of whittled things down even more. Um, but, yeah, I you know, I, you rarely find a writer who comes out of the gate um, as fast as they, and, and strong as they can be. Uh, and so you need this time to just work and work and work and struggle and cry and weep and um, lie on the floor looking at the ceiling. and <laughs> just, just running on your treadmill, just weeping. <laughs> I know. Believe it or not, it happens more than you could possibly imagine. No, I'll tell you. Um, I'll and- tell you. Right before we started talking, um, I was, I've been saying to this myself all morning, but like I've been working and I've been working fairly well. 
But at the same time, like the work for whatever reason, like left me in this state where I felt like I was almost going to, I was almost going to cry. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. it, was, it was like this weird emotional state where I was like, I don't have anything to be sad about in particular, but like, I just feel like emotionally raw in a way that like, if somebody made a sudden noise, I might just start crying. You know, <laughs> like, does that, right, make, does that right. make any sense? I mean, am I? Uh... Oh God. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the emotional state where you have to work yourself into in order to write things that are just emotionally devastating, but, but you also finished a big project, right? I mean, is that why possibly? Because you, well, I didn't finish it, but I finished working for oh. the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, no, I, you said you finished it. No, no, no. I wish I had finished it. That's what you believe yeah. this whole time. You're like, oh my god. He just I did. Came. Yeah. I, I was like, why is he calling me? You should be drinking champagne. <laughs> no, I would be weeping if that had happened. I'd be weeping tears yeah. of joy. I'd be running, right. running, running around Los Angeles, like you know, throwing <laughs> throwing myself a private parade. Um, but no, you know, it's just it's weird. It like brings up that stuff, and um, you know, I think it's I think it's hopefully fairly common. Yeah, no, it's well, it's definitely common for me. Um, and here, you know, it's it's not better during the times when you're not working well. Right now, I'm not working well because I'm too anxious. Um, but and and so, I just think of all these hours passing <laughs> without me doing anything of any note or merit at all, and it's. But that also is just an, an enormous emotional load too. But I mean, so, you've got you've got yeah. Arcadia about to come out. I mean, it's not like I mean, you deserve to have. I think writers need to have this moment because you get so few of them. I mean, publication in a lifetime. I mean, I guess some writers publish like crazy and they have like fifty books or something. But for most of us, it's like you know, over the course of a lifetime, it's like you know, somewhere between like five and twenty books. Um, right. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just grabbing numbers out of the air, but that seems about right <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. So you, I think you need, after all the time you spent laboring in your uh, sweat lodge, you need to have a moment. Uh, like you need to have your, your, you know, take a victory lap and like go enjoy the, this part of it, right? Right. Well, but does anyone ever actually enjoy this part of it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Um, it's it's so fraught. It's uh, I don't know. You're positioning your baby in the middle of a football field for someone to either throw rocks or. Uh, like lilies at it or something, you know, it's not like it's, you're getting ready to let go too. And I know that it's, it's so immaterial and it it's all in my head, but I know that before a book is published, no matter how many people have read the ARC, it's still mine in a way that after it's published, it's not, and it's never going to be again. And, you know, for me, this, this time is just, it's a, a morning, a, a time of mourning, not necessarily a celebration, just because it's not going to be my book anymore. I know you, I mean, you have a daughter, right? And she's how old? 14 months old? Uh, 18. Right? 18 months old. Yeah. Okay, so she's, she's little, but do you remember when she turned one? And you're like, oh, I have a daughter, but she's not a baby anymore. Yeah. You know, she's not like attached to us anymore. And I said, so, so that's what, this time is to me always, even though I know I should be so grateful and I should take this time to, you know, catch up on my reading or something. But instead, I sit here and walk on the treadmill and think, God, got to get working, got to get working, got to get another project under my belt and do nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I always likened it. I likened it to like sending my, uh, like when my uh, first novel went out, it was like sending your kid to school on the first day and just like hoping it didn't get its ass kicked. Like that's how I felt. <laughs> 
Totally. I was like, I hope no one totally. beats him up, you know? And like every <laughs> everything negative that people say, it's like, you, you know, your kid just got punched. I uh, know. It's awful. Right. Right. It is. It is. And even if your kid gets kissed afterwards, whatever, still get punched, yeah. you know? Yeah. You still got punched. I don't yeah. even know if I want anyone kissing my kid. I mean, come on. You know? <laughs> Keep your hands off my child. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. So, but, but like you know, on a positive note, though, uh, Arcadia has uh, had has received far more lilies than punches so far, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, definitely. It's, it's, your, your work has ha- has received a lot of support. Stephen King was a huge early supporter. I mean, you've had a good ride, like in terms of like your early publication life. I mean, would you say that's fair? That's totally fair. And I know that when I say things like what I just said, I can I can sound ungrateful and I'm so not ungrateful I'm incredibly grateful I'm also trying to, to say how it's like an ambivalent ambivalent um, blessing in a way sure sure, sure. um yeah, yeah yeah no I I've had I've been I've had so much love um and good fortune too definitely so with this novel um you know uh, before I let you go I want to talk about um, like the theme, the, the theme of it, like the theme of utopia. And I heard you actually mention this earlier when you were speaking about Cooperstown. Um, but like broadly, like the book is about, um, a guy who's raised, um, you know, is commune the right word or like in this kind of like alternative community that's trying to be utopia. Uh, and it's about utopia and its aftermath, right. And it's about kind of like countercultural yeah. living. And so like, you know, the, the, this is the way I imagine it working for you uh, in, in terms of your interior world. And I just love to hear you talk a little bit about it. But, you know, are you an idealist? And is this book like you psychologically trying to reconcile um, your idealistic tendencies with the actual world, especially now that you're a parent, which I feel like is a kind of time in one's life when that happens, where you're like, okay, like I got to get a little bit more serious about this as I'm now in charge of the well-being of this little person. Or am I totally misreading all of this? You are so on, like, 143%. Um, so what had happened was, um, so I always, this part of the, the narrative is always really interesting to me because it only comes clear to me when I do talk like this because there's the narrative of the story and then there's the narrative of how the story was written. Um, but this particular book was written when um, I was pregnant with my first son, Um and I'm not a good pregnant person. I'm a very, very hormonal and angry and sad uh, pregnant person. And um, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's you know the guys do get what their their wives and partners get, um, unfortunately. Um, but so I was just a mess, a terrible, ugly mess, and I could feel myself going down into this spiral. This death spiral, um, which is an t- awful thing for, because you, you've got this kid growing in you and they, and they absorb everything of you. And, uh, nobody wants to bring a child into uh, the world where the mommy is just so unhappy. Um, so, uh, I actually, I started doing research and reading because I wanted to pull myself out of this and, and research does that for me. Um, you know, reading things in a pointed way makes me start to think um, more deeply about the world that I'm living in. So I started to read about 
um, both philosophical utopias, um, the ones that are generally in novels and books and things like that, but also about actual um, communes and intentional communities and things that people have created in history. And uh, a lot of themes popped out and, and kept recurring. And um, this this book was, I mean, it is the least autobiographical book by far of or or story of anything that I've ever written, but it's it's by far the most deeply personal um, because there are incredible elements of um, happiness and unhappiness in it, and that comes directly from from me and the way that I was handling the world. But there's also this deep desire to find idealism again and and want to to live in a world of idealism and, you know, in a community. I was also, you know, I mean, add on to the, the thing, the body dysmorphia and the, the hormones. I was also fairly new to Gainesville and I, and I write alone, you know, you work alone in this, this rank in, in this bug infested swamp. And and I knew nobody. Uh, I mean, I think I had one friend for the first two years I lived here. It was is incredibly lonely. Um, so this book was a desperate attempt to to argue myself into belief um, belief in happiness and in the better part of human nature and in community, and that community can uh, be life giving even if it if it falls apart. And and in the things that I did research, um, most of the communities fall apart. And they do so because um, people overlook human nature. And that most particularly the ugly parts of human nature, the, the ungenerous parts and the, frankly, the sex parts um, and the greed and, and things like that. And when they do fall apart, you know, the children, especially who have not necessarily asked to be born into these these communities have to deal with the world outside and I think that that's an, a very interesting um, sideways view of idealism you know what the ramifications are upon children um, even though the parents do have good intentions what happens to the kids afterwards so um, all of this, it was just a big, long four-year war um, with myself to write this book. Um, and, I, you know, what was, what's interesting is the, the first few drafts um, ended up much more dystopian um, and much more dark. Um, but it wasn't right, and it wasn't necessarily what I believed. And I think writers have to to teach themselves through their books what they understand and believe. I mean, they don't obviously know to begin with or else they wouldn't embark on this many-year process to finish this large, colossal thing that they don't really understand. Um, so so that's sort of the birth narrative of Arcadia. Yeah. And I ended up, you know, I ended up in a much better place after it. Oh, and, I was, and, was going yeah. to say, like, what did you learn? I mean, you know, like at, at the end of it, can you, can you boil it down? I mean, I know that's kind of like a tough question, but like, do you have, do you have like a lesson or a takeaway from it all that you feel the solid? Well, I mean, 
I, I, so the problem with this book is that it raises way more questions than it answers. And I don't think it, it answers almost anything. But the thing that it came to is um, it's a, uh, having faith in humanity, especially, you know, things are really scary these days. Um, and I think they probably always have been scary. But having faith in humanity is something that you have to work at. I mean, you can't just let it go. Um, you have to continuously feel hopeful and, and keep your hope alive by paying attention to the beautiful things that you can overlook, um, the moments that are, are beautiful and recognize them and flag them and, and know them. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not going to find a perfect place in Gainesville, <laughs> like just in a personal way. I, there is no perfect place, but there's a, there's a space within a human heart that can always work toward it. And this is something that I have to remind myself. I have to work for this. Um, I can't, you know, this isn't, it's not given to you. You have to work. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a a wise, a wise note to end on. Uh, Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, no, it sounds like, it sounds, sounds, uh, sounds like you came to a good place at the end of it all. And, uh, the book is called Arcadia and uh, Lauren, it's been so fun talking with you. Best of luck with everything. And, uh, you know, I'll be interested to see uh, what you come up with in the years to come. Thanks so much, Brad. It was been, it's been great to talk to you, too. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the show. That's Lauren Groff for the hour. Go get her new novel. It's really good. It's called Arcadia, and it's available now from Hyperion. If you want to find her on the web, she's at laurengroff.com, and Groff is spelled with two Fs at the end. Uh, she's on the Twitter, and her handle is at LeGroff. That's L-E-G-R-O-F-F. And she has a Facebook presence. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the uh, address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song. Thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. And uh, I hope I didn't sound too pessimistic on the front end of the show when I was talking about athletes and talent. Uh, I mean, you know, ultimately it can't be about that, right? It has to be about the love of the game and uh, the doing of the thing has to be the primary source of enjoyment. So even if you're not Michael Jordan, uh, you're not the Michael Jordan of writers, as long as you're having some fun with it and you like doing it and you're not torturing yourself too much, uh, then by all means continue, you know, because uh, obviously not every basketball player is Michael Jordan and that should be said. You know, there, there have been guys in the NBA like Spud Webb and Vladi Divac. I think that's how you pronounce that. People like that. It's a mix. It's a variety. And there is room for a few scrubs, right? So I just want to make sure that's clear. Uh, it is a strange existence and everybody is trying to do stuff and accomplish things. And get somewhere and go someplace and be someone and win and not lose. And uh, uh, I kind of hate that. It kind of makes me ulcerous. It kind of makes me want to run very fast on the beach, straight into the ocean, and swim until I can't swim anymore, and then sink to the bottom of the ocean with both of my middle fingers extended heavenward. But of course, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay on the shore, and I'm going to watch the waves crash onto the shore, and I'm going to watch the children play in the waves as debris from Fukushima Daiichi washes onto the sand. Huh? How's that for a positive note? You like that? All right, kind of edgy, kind of dark. Back again next week. Please remember that an emotion is the body's response to a thought. 
And please remember to appreciate the wonder of the accidental comedy. And who wants to be a, you know, who wants to be a shot putter anyway, right? Who gives a rat's ass about the shot put? <laughs>